Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. And we are in uh, 2 Thessalonians this morning. Excuse me, I should have said 2 Thessalonians. Um, that is, we're on actually page uh, 989 in your uh, Pew Bibles. If you want to follow along with this, it's uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, Paul wrote this letter to the, Thessal- Thessal- the Christians at Thessalonica, which is a port city on the Aegean Sea in northern Greece. And um, today, the city of Thessaloniki sits atop where that ancient uh, city was, and it's the second largest city in Greece. Um, but the church there had been enduring some persecution as a result of some false teaching, and Paul wrote this letter to correct some of this false teaching that they had received to the effect that the day of the Lord had already come. And uh, uh, if you uh, were a Christian uh, living in this city of uh, Thessalonica and you thought the rapture had already happened and you were left behind, uh, you might get a little rattled Uh, You might be concerned, and of course this has been the theme of some popular movies and books uh, in our culture. And I think there's enough self-doubt in many of us that that if we experience something similar to this, we too might be shaken up a bit. Well, what is the Day of the Lord? Uh, It's uh, referred to 75 times in the Bible, the Day of the Lord. And uh, the prophet Joel was the first one to use it. Uh, And he said, the day of the Lord begins with darkness, the darkness of the great tribulation period. Uh, uh, If you're looking at the scripture, back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul actually gives us a description of the day of the Lord. He says, it is when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed." Well, even as the day of the Lord begins with fiery judgment, uh, it, it ends in glorious light, with the Messiah returning to uh, establish his kingdom on the earth. And this was what the Old Testament writers taught, and this was the hope of those Old Testament writers. Now, the funny thing is, uh, when I was growing up uh, in a suburb of Los Angeles, In elementary school, we used to sing a patriotic song all about the day of the Lord. Uh, For two free tickets to the congregational meeting, who knows what that song... Yes, he got it. He got it. So I was, you know, heartily singing along third, fourth, fifth grade. I didn't have a clue, you know, what I was singing about, but uh, some of you may remember... Uh, the beginning of it, which is, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming 
of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed his fateful lightning, the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. Now, as a church, we don't take an official position on the timing of the rapture. The rapture is the, this idea that uh, when the Lord returns, either simultaneous with or, or before that, uh, believers who have died are raised up, and believers who are still alive are uh, caught up together in the clouds uh, with the Lord at his return. Now, whether the rapture takes place at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the great tribulation, uh, our church takes no position on that. So you have the freedom to develop your own conclusions. And I've been studying this for 30 years. I believe there are good arguments on all sides. I hope it happens at the beginning, but, but I, I want to have the right frame of mind, the right attitude in the event that it doesn't. After all, Jesus told his disciples, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. He said, in this world you will face tribulation. And for many Christians living throughout history, they have known that persecution and that tribulation. uh, And it's been very intense. Now, if you are a Christian living today in Syria or Iraq uh, or a place like North Korea, it may feel to you like the Great Tribulation is already here. Uh, And you are looking forward to to Jesus' return, the blessed hope, when he's going to return and make all things right and establish peace and justice on this earth. Now, I don't know if the day of the Lord is going to happen in five years or 50 years, um, but I know that we are a whole lot closer to that day than the Thessalonian church. It could happen in your lifetime. So this is something we should uh, have some concern about, have some focus on, and have the right attitude of heart and mind as we approach that day. Well, let me pray as I open up um, chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians. Lord, open the eyes of our heart now. Uh, Grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we read your word so that we may know you more and more deeply and know how we can can be changed to follow you even more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they had received this false teaching, either in person uh, or a letter that may have even had Paul's name forged on it. And uh, he says here, literally, you were shaken out of your mind. But he doesn't want him to be taken in by this bogus teaching, this devilish deception. Let's look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul says, first of all, the day of the Lord is not going to happen until the rebellion comes first and this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. Jesus added another prerequisite in his teaching in Matthew 24, and he said that the gospel of the kingdom would be proclaimed throughout the the entire world to every tribe and tongue, and then the end will come. Well, first off, what is this rebellion that Paul's talking about? Uh, The Greek word used here is apostasia, from which we get the word apostasy. And uh, some uh, translations use the word apostasy instead of rebellion. But apostasy means a falling away from the truth by those who once held it. A falling away from the truth by those who once held it held it. And Paul's teaching here seems to parallel Jesus' teaching about the signs of the end of the age in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, 9, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. There's the apostasy. Many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now Jesus teaches that this persecution will cause many to fall away from the truth. There are some... uh, former Muslims, now Christians, who read the book of Revelation and they see the persecution, they see the beheadings, they see the tribulation, and they see, domin- they see uh, radical Islam pl- playing a role in that, <coughs> in that book. Now having said that, <coughs> I often have to check myself about having the, the right attitude toward Muslims. Um, there are Uh, approximately 1.5 billion Muslims around the world. They estimate perhaps 200 million of them are uh, radicalized. Well, we we cannot fight all of them. And um, uh, there is this teaching of Jesus about loving our enemies. So how do we do that? How How do we listen? How do we engage with them? How do we learn to love and forgive an enemy that might be persecuting or attacking us? Well, part of that answer, uh, for those who came Friday night and saw a guest who was here sharing some video uh, that Sam and Raya invited, he shared video from the Middle East of some courageous uh, missionaries who were there, uh, who were ministering to Muslims. And uh, one young man they highlighted in this video was 20 years old from the U.S., He felt God calling him 
to go move to the Middle East, learn Arabic, and begin to minister among Muslims. A 20-year-old young man. And so they had some video shots of him going out, and he's mainly working with Syrian refugees. And he's, he's developing friendship with them. He's listening to them. He's engaging them, and he's also showing, him, showing them the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And many are coming to faith. They even had a healing uh, on this video where he prayed for somebody's foot, and this foot was healed right on the video. <clears throat> well, Paul also says, uh, before the day of the Lord, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. What are some of the characteristics uh, at which this individual might be recognized? Well, he's going to attract followers from all over the world with his magnetic personality. He will be a financial and political genius. In Daniel 7, he's referred to as the man of sin or uh, the little horn. And Daniel wrote, This horn possess eyes like a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So he will be boastful, uh, egotistical, a megalomaniac in his quest for world power. He will come preaching peace, Daniel says, but through peace he will destroy many. His authority will be overpowering. His hatred, extraordinary. His political techniques, superb. He will be a deceiver, able to make you think that bad is good, and vice versa, to make you think black is white. Up is down. And during his reign, everyone will receive an ID mark, and you will not be able to buy food or anything else unless you have that ID. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, he's not going to deceive me. And the scripture says he will deceive even the elect if that were possible. He's going to soak up adulation and worship from his followers. Like his father the devil, he ultimately wants worship. In verse 4, Paul wrote that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now some uh, scholars think this rebuilt uh, temple uh, is uh, a, or this this temple is a rebuilt uh, Jewish temple in Jerusalem on or near the Dome of the Rock, which, as many of you know, is very sensitive real estate. Um, other scholars think uh, that the temple could refer to the temple. The temple of God could refer to the church, since Paul refers in other places to the church as the temple of God. Let's look at verse six. As you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul says that someone or something is restraining this coming world leader until just the right time. 
Well, who or what is this restrainer? Uh, some believe it is the uh, Roman Empire or, gov- or governments that succeed uh, the Roman Empire. Some scholars say it is uh, the church or the Holy Spirit working through the church. Uh, some interpreters think it is Michael the Archangel. But whoever or whatever the restrainer is, this restrainer functions to make sure the Antichrist is revealed in his time and not before. But right now, Paul says, even before he appears on the world stage, this mystery of lawlessness is at work. What's behind this mystery of lawlessness? This is the spirit of Antichrist that has been at work throughout world history. It has a venomous hatred toward Christians and Jews. This is where the anti-Semitic spirit comes from. And this spirit attacks Christians and Jews and tries to thwart the plans of God. Ephesians 6 tells us there are spiritual forces at work in the heavenly realm, in the unseen spiritual realm. And these demonic entities deceive and try to undermine and destroy Christian uh, leaders. They try to destroy Christian marriages, try to destroy Christian ministries and Christian homes. What is behind the rise of teen suicide in Laguna Beach? I believe this spirit of this, this uh, mystery of lawlessness lawlessness may be a factor as it seeks to destroy young people using drugs, through depression, uh, lies and deception to get them into this place, into this pit of darkness and despair where they think there's no way out. I have to give a shout out to my son Sam for helping to raise awareness and put some attention on this issue of teen suicide and to help galvanize uh, some support from the high school and the medical communi- community to, uh, to deal with this. Well, our only hope is another mystery, and that is the mystery of godliness, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we uh, know, praise God from the scripture, the mystery of godliness will ultimately defeat the mystery of lawlessness. Right now, there is this restrainer at work. And God has said to the devil, you can go so far and no further. Despite how bad things may look when you read the newspaper, God still has this world in his control. No matter what the devil uh, comes up with, whatever his plots and schemes, God is still on the throne. There is no surprise, shock, or panic in heaven. Just plans. And God is going to unfold those plans that lead to the triumphant return of Jesus to rule and reign. When he returns, it says he's going to destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. I love that. Uh, As we know, God created the heavens and the earth with just one word. And with less than a word, just a breath, he destroys the Antichrist. Let's look at verse 9. 
The coming of the lawless, the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and, be sa- and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul's telling us this Antichrist will be empowered by Satan, and he's going to use these signs and wonders to deceive those who are perishing. Satan threw everything he had at Jesus before Satan was defeated at the cross. And he's going to throw everything he has at humanity before the return of Jesus Christ. Paul says these signs and wonders are false, not because they're not real, but because they don't lead people toward the truth. They lead people away from the truth. So this should stand as a warning to us to not make signs and wonders the basis for our faith or the foundation for the truth that we believe. In this section, Paul uh, teaches that people will reject the truth because they take pleasure in unrighteousness. I don't know if you've ever been in that place as a believer when the, the enticement, the draw, the seduction of evil was so strong that it at least momentarily drew you away from the truth. I've been there. Uh, and when I'm in that place, going down that road, uh, if I've allowed a spirit of rebellion to enter in, then I want to put God's truth at arm's length. And if I succumb to that temptation, afterward I, I face that conviction of, of uh, coming back to the Lord, seeking restoration of fellowship and forgiveness. But Paul is, teaches here and elsewhere that if we keep going down that road uh, in willful disobedience, that a certain hardening of our hearts takes place. And Paul says this is reinforced by God. This is something I don't understand. I want to argue with God on this point. Uh, In Romans 1, Paul wrote that God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonorable passions. Ultimately, God allows people the freedom to go their own way. I'm struck by a recent Barna survey that reveals that 78% of men attending evangelical churches are regularly viewing pornography. I believe this is killing men's ministry and the men's movement at large in the United States. The survey says that three out of five divorces now are tied to pornography. And Josh McDowell says, at this moment, there's never been anything in history that's destroying more churches, more pastors, more marriages, more young people than pornography. 
In the survey, the young people that they surveyed said they thought that not recycling was a bigger transgression than viewing pornography. Not recycling. Now, I have filters and accountability software on my laptop, on my TV, on my phone, because I know my weakness. So if you are a guy who has struggled or is struggling in this area, I want to encourage you uh, to bring it into the light, to share uh, with a brother. Call me confidentially. Because when you bring things into the light, that's the first step in finding freedom and victory in this area. Now in verse 13, Paul shifts, from, shifts to some good news. He says, no matter how bad things may look to you Thessal- Thessalonians, no matter how bad it may look to us when we turn on the evening news, we have a hope that is steadfast and sure. Of all the people in the world, we should be the ones who have a clue to what's going on and understand uh, the season that we're in as we approach the end of history as we know it. Let's look at verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. First of all, he tells them they are loved by God and that God chose them from the beginning. How far back did God choose them? He chose them and he chose you and me before the foundation of the world, before he created matter, before time was even born, he thought about you and he loved you. That's a mind-blowing concept to me. Sometimes people talk about finding the Lord. Well, the reality is he found you first. He, He wooed you. He drew your heart. Even in the midst of your sin and rebellion, he was drawing you, loving you, until that point of surrender when you said, yes, I believe, I want to follow you. Surprisingly, the uh, scripture teaches of salvation as this ongoing process. Something that also that's hard for me to get my mind around, that we were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And this, this passage says we're saved through sanctification and belief in the truth. Sanctification is that lifelong process where we're becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more holy like Jesus. And how many of us will acknowledge that sanctification is a rocky road? Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you for being honest. I sometimes feel like I've put some of the ruts there myself. But thankfully, it's a work of God like everything else. God loves, God chooses, God saves, and God, through the Holy Spirit, sanctifies and brings us to glory. Let's look at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this gospel? 
that Paul refers to here. In Romans 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I think there may be some sitting here today who have believed in Jesus, but you haven't been ready to make him Lord and to confess that in front of someone else. And uh, I know I was in that place some years ago when I didn't want to give up control of my life to God. I wanted to run my own life. So uh, saying, you are Lord, is a very important point of demarcation. And uh, if if you've gotten to that point this morning where you want to confess that, where you want to say, Jesus is my Lord, uh, we'll have some people up here a prayer team after the service, and you can talk to them about that, that you, wanna, that you have believed in Jesus, and now you want to confess him as your Lord. Verse 15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. In shaky, uncertain times, Paul says to hold firm to stand firm and hold to the traditions that he taught them. He's not talking about the traditions of men. He's talking about the teachings of the apostles that have been handed down to us and recorded in the Holy Scripture. Any church that turns away from these foundational truths gets weaker and weaker and falls into error. Nothing can take the place of the Scripture. But we don't look to the Scripture to find rules about how to live. Or pick just some of these rules and then for ourselves and then judge others if we don't see them living up to the rules that we've picked out. We study the Bible to find a real person. To have relationship personal, intimate relationship with a real person, the person of Jesus Christ. And for that, that, real, that real intimate relationship to begin to transform us from the inside out. Standing firm is the opposite of being shaken. What gives us stability and calm in the midst of persecution or tribulation is standing firm, holding on to these foundational truths, and even more, abiding in Christ, having a personal, moment-by-moment walk with Him. can't think of a better way to complete this message than to read uh, verses 16 and 17, which are a benediction. Paul writes, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father. And literally it says there, uh, may himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God our Father. He's equating the two, Jesus and God. And actually puts Jesus first in this instance. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts 
and establish them in every good work and word.